0: I bring uh, greetings from Emmanuel Bible Church, um, from our church, and we're in the San Fernando Valley, and we pray for you guys. In fact, this morning, I know that, um, actually, they've finished their service already, but um, they, they, they did pray for your church generally, for, for me, and for the preaching of the Word this morning, and so we are thankful for you guys. And what a privilege to come and uh, share the Word with you guys, um, uh, especially um, because it's the first Sunday of the new year. So I, I trust that you guys have had a blessed Christmas, spent some time together. New Year's. I'm I'm big on Christmas, not so big on New Year's. We we always have some obligation to, to hang out with friends and stuff. And I don't mind hanging out with friends, right? But I, I don't need to stay up all night just because, I, I don't know why, you know. Just so we could celebrate and say count down to from ten to one. I could still do that, right? Ten, <laughs> nine, eight, and a happy, right? We get all excited. So that's a common thing that we do, and. Uh, Uh, But it's exhausting for me. I trust, as I look out at a lot of our younger faces out here, that you guys had a great time. But, uh, yeah, that's not my cup of tea. I'm not 20. I'm, like, 24. (laughs) uh, Like, like, like half a, half a, yeah, I'm 50. Anyway, um, but uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10... And because it's the first Sunday of the year, I thought, like, how could I encourage you guys? And I, I might have bit off more than I can chew in terms of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. But wonder what a wonderful passage for us to begin the new year, to think about what the gospel is and how that should inspire us with confidence to respond to God in a particular way. Because, see, it is the first Sunday of the year. And if it, was, if it was up to me, and if it was up to just kind of my kind of bootstrap attitude towards how can I encourage this congregation to press on, I would probably encourage you to read your Bible more, right? Share the gospel more often. Um, Pray more frequently. Love each other more. Serve the body more. I'd probably make a list of all the things you're supposed to do, but do you realize that the best version of every good work you might potentially participate in is increased, the best version of it, is inspired and increased and motivated by just living nearer to the Lord. By just living nearer to the Lord. And as uh, we begin thinking about uh, um, some of the things that are here in this particular passage, um, let let me read for you Charles Spurgeon's short um, prayer for his congregation at the beginning of a year. He once said this, I wish my brothers and sisters that during this year you may live nearer to Christ than you have ever done before. Depend upon it. It is when we think much of Christ that we think little of ourselves, little of our troubles, and little of the doubts and fears that surround us. Begin from this day and may God help you. It's an excellent prayer and an important one for us as well. That as we begin this year, that we would desire to press on, but press on specifically in understanding who God is, in in deepening our affections for Him, in increasing in our confidence that He has done great things for us. And that's what we mean by gospel confidence. Let me read to us the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, and then I will pray and begin to unpack um, what Scripture and what the Lord has for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed, with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near shall we pray our Heavenly father we come before you now before your word and ask that you would take the scriptures and that you would implant it in our hearts and souls. That we might bear fruit from what we hear this morning, not because of the cleverness of men, Lord, but because of the word of our God. And Lord, as we think about the gospel and Lord, um, praise you for our time of worship together, for, uh, for, for the strengthening of our bonds to you as we, as we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ and what it means that he has risen to new life so that we might be forgiven of sins and might have new life in him. We pray that the gospel would ring true to us, to each one of us in this room. Maybe for those that are kind of hearing this, maybe for the first time, maybe for the fifth time, but still need to consider what it is that is holding them back. Let us know the good news of Jesus Christ and let that build for us a confidence that spurs us on Lord, to rest in you, to lean in on you, and then to encourage others to do the same. So we praise you and ask that you would bless our time in the scriptures this morning, um, that we would walk in boldness because our God has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen, amen. <clears throat> you know, I don't know if you've ever met someone famous and. I started thinking about this. I realized I have on several occasions, and famous by world standards, you know. In fact, last night um, we're spending some time together in Koreatown, and we ran into like a YouTuber. And uh, I'm not a big YouTube guy, and um, um, I, I didn't—I'll be honest—I don't know much about YouTube. But you know, this particular guy I knew because he does—you know—he runs around and he tells you if certain things are worth eating or whatever. I care about that, right? And so, so you know, I recognized him. We took pictures and invited him to church he he says he's a christian which i was very encouraged by etc and on other occasions i've met like you know like you know movie stars while i'm standing in line trying to get something to eat and i've been very unimpressed by how these action stars are really short you know what i mean and i just thought man you know like that's not believable to me like like i wish you were at least six seven or something like like i i can't believe that you could save the world now that you're so short right and other people in different occasions I've run into, and in most of those occasions, I'm not the kind of person that, that will like kind of be, oh, man, I'm so nervous to meet them. But I have been nervous on a couple of occasions to meet people that I really care about, um, people that really um, are encouraged by. Um, I went to the Master's Seminary. I think the first time I met uh, Pastor John MacArthur. I, I, I can't remember what I said, but I'm pretty sure I said nothing. Like, I, I think I said like gibberish. Oh, uh, pleasure to meet My uh, Good to see you. You know, like, I, I, better, I better go sit down, right? Like, it's one of those moments where if we come into the presence of someone that we really care about, and like I'm saying, like, you know, celebrities, et cetera, that's great, that's fine, hey, high five, um, I'm a fan of your work, but godly people that I look up to, you know, meeting R.C. Sproul or someone, you know, I, I'm a little nervous, I'm a little intimidated, and I don't know why that is, but I do know that I'm not intimidated to go and meet with my godly wife. Kathy, my love is not able to be here with you guys today and with me um, uh, because we have a women's event um, for the next couple of weeks, and so she felt that she really needed to be there for that, and so praise the Lord for, for her and her ministry to our church. But I, I love my wife, but there is a confidence that I can approach her that is just kind of familial, familiar like family, you know, as an adjective. I know that's a weird way to say normal English words, right? but I'm saying like, there's something about my relationship to her that I can just walk on in. I can talk to her. And I hope that's true with my kids. And I think it is, because they interrupt me all the time. Right? I can be doing anything. And it's just like they're just kind of like, hey dad, you know, it's like, it's like, hey, bro, I'm on the phone, right? Like, whatever it is, they just feel comfortable to walk in. And the reason why I bring that up is because that's the kind of confidence I want to understand and to appreciate that comes from our gospel reality. Yes we are declared righteous by the blood of Christ, meaning that we are saved from our sins because Christ has taken the penalty of our sins. That's true. But do you guys realize it's not just that God says, okay, I I tell you what, I'm going to give you a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card. This is one chance you get. Now, Park, congratulations. You've heard the gospel. You've believed it. And so at this moment, this very moment, you are saved from your sins, but good luck with the rest of your life. Do your best not to sin, because if you mess this up, I gave you your one shot. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not only that he has rescued us, that we are justified, that we stand righteous before the holy God of this universe, because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that, but that we are asked to now enter into a relationship with him. There's a family confidence that the gospel should inspire. And I think if we understand that, if we build on that, I think it increases our capacity to love, to minister, to care for others, and to worship and to serve the God that we love. This is gospel confidence. And the basis of that gospel confidence is, of course, the gospel itself. Take a look at verse 19 to 21. Take a look at verse 19 first. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. The basis of our confidence, our familial confidence, our our, our gladness to just walk in to the presence of the living God is based, of course, on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the therefore builds on what he, what the author of Hebrews has been building up to this point, namely that Christ is better, that he's a better priest, that he's a better sacrifice, that he's greater than all the things that we have ever desired to see in fruition from the promises of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it all. And as the scriptures build that, he says, "Brother, so then... We have this confidence now to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, 19 and 20, the author of Hebrews is building for us kind of this, this picture of the Old Testament. I appreciate that, that we read our, our passage um, this morning from uh, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, it is exactly that. It is the Old Testament expression of the priest and what he does for us that is, that is the imagery that is behind what he is talking about here. It, it is about entering into the holy place. And I know our ESV says holy places, but the idea is that in the tabernacle or the sanctuary, you have kind of you know, the, the holy place that you go into, and then there's this curtain from top to bottom, and then there's the the Holy of Holies. There's a place that none could enter into, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Mercy Seat was, where God's presence was, and only the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, with blood, can enter into there. We don't just casually walk in. I don't go, hey, I'm a a Jewish believer in God, so let me just, peek behind the curtain. You You don't enter into the presence of God. So what he's building is this picture that somehow we have found this confidence, this ability to come into the very presence of the Holy God. How is this possible? And it's possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Early in chapter 10, verse 4, makes this very bold declaration. says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What were they doing in the Old Testament then? On the day of atonement, they estimated there was hundreds of thousands of gallons of blood spilled. All the animals that you had to sacrifice. I mean, so much blood. A river of blood poured out from the altar. What was all that about? It is a shadow of what is to come that the greater thing would be fulfilled in Christ. And so by the blood of Christ, we might enter in to the presence of God the Father. Now, now understand this. um, historical um, um, scholars would tell us that the, the crucifixion is not a bloody mess, right? That, that's not the intention of the crucifixion. There's other, you know, torturous means of death where it's more bloody. But when, we, when the scriptures talk about the blood of Christ, it's not so much talking about his actual blood fluid. It is talking about his death, but in particular, the kind of death that is connected to the Old Testament sacrifices, that reminds us that this is what was happening in the Old Testament, that life for a life because of our sins. Now Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, he becomes the final, the absolute, and the once for all sacrifice for us. So by his blood, by his death, we can now enter into the holy place. We can, we can pierce the veil and go behind the curtain. Verse 20 says, by this new and living way that he's opened for us, through the curtain that is his flesh. You may remember at the, at the very moment that Jesus is uh, crucified and he yields up his spirit, the thick veil that, that you know that separates the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It, it was a barrier Um, not, not just to prevent us from entering into the presence of God, it separated that which was holy from that which is unholy. It protected us, the unholy, from the danger of drawing near to a holy God. And by Christ's death, that veil is torn. We are welcome into his presence. And so when this word confidence is used here, he says, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is through his flesh. When it uses this confidence, this word for confidence, we mean a boldness, an unreserved freedom. It is a child running into his father's presence. It is, it is us walking into, you know, into the presence of an old friend, It is not something that was was open to those that understood the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men in the Old Testament. This is talking about acceptance, a relational new covenant acceptance so that we actually have access to God, our Heavenly Father. You know, if you consider what it means that we are encouraged to come into the presence of the living God. Uh, this is exactly what worship, what, what, what the entire perspective of why we need to be saved really resonated with saints of all time. What, what did they want from God? Just that he doesn't squash it, them with his thumb? That he doesn't just drop the hammer of justice upon them? No, what they wanted was, was acceptance. They wanted to know that God accepted them. They wanted to know that they had a relationship with him. And the basis of any confidence, of any sense of familial affection, of, of, of being able to draw near, of connecting with the Lord, is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 21 adds a second, and that's since we have a great priest over the house of God. So, first, you have the basis of his sacrifice. Secondly, you have the basis of his priesthood. And again, is the argument of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. That this is the great, great priest over the house of God. That he is a priest unlike any other. That he has no beginning, he has no end. He is not like the high priest of the past who, you know, live for the term that is their term, which is their life, and then they die. You know, he's a priest that has no beginning, he has no end, and his ministry to us will never end. And he is in charge of God's house. The point is simply this, that Jesus is better. He's the new and better living way. He's a better sacrifice, better than the blood of bulls and goats. He's a better priest, a better master over God's household because he is sympathetic to us, because he is is merciful and faithful to us, because his service cannot be ended and he never has an end. Christ is our perfect sacrifice so that we have access to the Father, but he is our eternal minister so that he is continually ministering continuing his eternal ministry and advocacy for us the gospel is that we are sinners we are dead in our trespasses and sins and dead is one of those absolute terms which i love right isn't it sick um jeremy was uh texting me and and i'm I'm thankful that we're praying for him that he's feeling better and and, uh, um, you know, he's disappointed that he can't be here, et cetera. And I was telling him, yeah, I was sick this week too. And only, only, only yesterday, maybe today, am I feeling a little bit better, right? But sickness is a relative term. So, for example, if you say, hey, Jeremy's not here, oh, what happened? And, and I say, oh, I heard that he's sick. You might be like, "How mm, I mean, how sick is he? You know, like, like, You know, like coughing up a lung sick or is he kind of like, Oh, the playoffs are starting. Oh, I feel, feel a little sick, right? It's a relative term. You're not sure exactly what, right? If, if, if Jeremy was here and he said, hey, listen, uh, Pastor Nat Park was supposed to preach here, but he can't make it. He's dead. None of you goes, hmm, how dead? <laughs> right? That's an absolute tip. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We deserved the eternal judgment of a holy God. That's, that's not questioned in scripture. That's just a matter of fact. The gospel is that God does something about that. That God sends his own son to live a perfect life and to die as the sacrifice in place of, what, uh, of the death that we deserve to die that God is the one that opens access to us so that if we would trust in him, if we would turn away from sin and seek his forgiveness, that he would not just say, okay, I pardon you, but I pardon you and I will adopt you and I will take you in. See, the gospel is not stand at a distance and do the best you can at human religion. The The gospel is come on in, feel free. You are welcome here. That's what we're talking about when we're saying there's a confidence that comes from the gospel. That is the gospel confidence that that we should appreciate. So verse 19 19 to 21 is about the basis of our gospel confidence, that we are confident in the presence of God because of Christ's sacrifice and because of his his continuing ministry. That kind of gospel-based confidence, it inspires us. And in this particular passage, it inspires us in three particular ways. These are the implications of gospel confidence in verse 22 to 25, right? The implications of gospel confidence in verse 22 to 25. The first implication is in verse 22. The reason why I'm saying implications is because you saw in verse 19 and 21, it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let these things be, right? Verse 22 The first implication is that we should draw near. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It is a command to draw near. It is is a command. But it's not given to us in the normal imperative tense. And, And it's kind of a, you know, maybe it's a minor point of grammar to you. But it's just interesting to me because I don't know Greek grammar well enough, so I have to kind of look at it carefully and figure it out. But it's it's a command given to us in the first person. That's why it's not in the imperative typical command tense. This is what I mean by that. We can easily explain this in English. I can give you a command, right? Go get me a donut, right? And you might go, no, you don't need a donut. You need to stop eating donuts, right? Or whatever. But I'm saying, I could command you, go get me a donut. And then what is implied as the subject of that command, of that verb, is what? You. Because that's the second person. See, that's the you. So I could mean, you know, you individually. I might point one of our brothers or sisters out and go, you, you know, young man, go get me a donut, right? Or I might use it in the second person plural. All of you. Because I'd be hungry. All of you. Each of you go get me a donut, right? And that—that's all of us, right? But it's always the command in the second person. You go do such a thing. What if I wanted to say, "We command we to get a donut"? What does that sound like in English? Sounds like nonsense. It sounds like you know, "We get a donut," right? And you'd be like, "What? Hmm. All right. Right." Like, The idea of this particular statement or the way that each of these implications are laid out for us, they are commands, but they're given in the first person plural. So it is the author of Hebrews saying, it's not just you that I'm telling you need to go. I'm saying this is us. This is all of us. Anyone who has placed their faith in Christ, this is all of us holding hands together. This is the implication of the gospel. This is what we do. This is how we live. This is what 2020, I almost said 2019. This is what 2020 is meant to be for us and every day thereafter. If we have given ourselves to the Lord Jesus, trusting in his death and his ministry for the rescue of our souls. And the first is let us draw near. So it's us, all of us, let us hold hands and let us press forward. This is the, come on, let's go, let's do this together. It's a command for us. And it's a command particularly to draw near to God. And at first it sounds so obvious. Of course we're supposed to draw near to God. If I tell you, hey, we need to draw near to God, you'd be like, yes, we do. Wait, how do we do that though? What does that mean practically? Practically. It's good for us to ask because the idea, I think, of drawing near to God is to come and approach Him as if we belonged to Him and Him to us or in the language of the prophets, that He would be our God and we would be His people. That that relationship would be clear and would be practiced out. That it is relational and that's why He has rescued us. It's like children recognizing the love of their father. That's a come. I think, drawing near is is so connected to relationship and love that that I appreciate what J.I. Packer once said about the Christian faith. He said this, If you want to judge how well a person understands his Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. That is well said. You get it? You get it. The, the, the point of the gospel is to not just rescue us and God going, okay, I guess someone else found the coupon code. Yeah, you get, you get your eternal savings. Come on in. And he just kind of backhands us in. Now the gospel is he is glad. He is the father of the prodigal running out to the street to embrace his sin-rebellious son. This is God with open arms saying, come. Come and be my child. So we are called together, all of us, every one of us, to draw near to God with a gospel confidence. With a confidence that comes from the reality. Because I want to understand this not merely as relational. And sometimes we think of relational, we immediately just think of emotional. And we think it's just kind of some experiential thing. Let us draw near in some vague manifestation. No, the scripture here in verse 22 is very clear. Let us draw near how? With two widths. With a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. There There is a connectedness. How is it that we can draw near to the Lord? How can we draw near to a holy God? And part of it is because what the gospel gives us is a true heart filled with assurance. True there means devoted or, or possibly sincere. The idea being that there, there aren't any ulterior motives that, that is a clear and, and it, the, heart, the heart of the one that is drawing near, that is called to draw near, is true. That is, that is sincere, that is devoted, that is, that is all in. And, and, and is certainly with a, with a heart in full assurance of faith. Meaning that their faith is assured. This is talking about a confidence without pretense and without fear. You know, um, I dress nicer on Sundays than I than I do all year or, or or the rest of the week, right? That's probably true for most of you guys. And, and praise God, there's nothing wrong with that. Part of it is because the significance of us, you know, elevating our time of worship and our time together. And I think there's that, that that's great and that's fine. Um, but but even as as I kind of you know. Prepare myself at least externally, I, I can, if I'm not careful, come into the house of worship with the pretense of kind of putting up like everything's okay. That while I'm struggling on the inside, kind of saying, Hey, you know, the, the common greeting we have for each other, they, hey, how you doing? Oh fine. And if, if you say, How you doing, and someone goes, Do you really care? Then it's like, oh man, that's awkward. I'll see you later, right? <laughs> like, how are you doing is a great thing to ask if you really want to know. But it's easy to show up with pretense. It's easy to come into the house of worship because you're supposed to, not because you want to. You know, think about any of your relationships. That's not what our relationships were defined to be. Well, what if everything we did was an issue of duty and not an issue of devotion? What if my wife, on our anniversary, I give her roses, you know, take her out to a nice meal, and then she says, Oh, honey, that was so sweet. I really appreciate that. And I go, Yeah, I'm supposed to do that. I have to do that, all right? That's my duty. Now the day's over and I get to go do what I want to do, all right? Isn't that weird? You get it? I mean, what is this whole let us draw near about? Well, it is about drawing near to God because our hearts are true, devoted, right, sincere, and we're filled with the assurance of what we have in Christ, this relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, and so that we are clear about this, it continues to use the language, um, right, of, of cleansing. It says in the second part of verse 22, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkling is what the high priest would do with the sacrificial blood. Sprinkle it at the base of the altar, right? Sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies at the mercy seat. Come back, sprinkle it on the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. That's, that's what you do. And because of the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins, it's saying that we are cleansed but cleansed so deeply that it affects even our conscience so that we're cleansed from an evil conscience. And by evil conscience, it means a conscience that hurts us, that attacks us, that is wicked to us. Why? Because we are languishing in guilt. See, the point is this, that we can draw near to God with assurance of faith and with devotion unbridled because our hearts have been so cleansed by the blood of Christ that we don't need to wallow in guilt. We don't need to be petrified by the fact that we're inadequate. We don't, we don't have to sit here and go, man, I am so junk. Why, can, why should I go and worship God? I can't pray. I, I'm such a sinner. I, I fail so much. I, I can't offer the Lord anything. All of that kind of stuff. No, your sins are paid in full, And the fact that you are wallowing in your own guilt suggests that you have the responsibility to self-atone. And if you're going to try to atone for your sins, then Christ is not atoning for your sins. We are cleansed to the degree of having our very consciences made right. So if Satan should bring up allegations against us, they would probably be true, right? Right? When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the sin within, there's a song, right? Upward I look and I see him there, right? Who who made a, what is it? And then to all my sin. Because our very consciences can be cleared not because we deserve it and not because those sins are not our sins. Not because our weaknesses, our struggles, our pains, our anxieties are not not real or not there. But because Christ had died for all those things. So there's no need for us to cling to things that no longer cling to us. And there's the second part, our bodies are washed with pure water. And again, another illustration of the cleansing, maybe relating back to, to Leviticus 16, when the high priest had to spend a week in ceremonial washing of his body so that he is clean. But, but, but probably the idea is simply, right, is uh, the, the metaphor of being washed so that we are pure. And baptism is the physical symbol of our spiritual cleansing, right? And in 1 Peter 3, 21, it says very clearly, it's not about the removal of dirt from the body. It's not you go under the water and then everything gets clean, right? It's, 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 it's that as the, 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 the symbol of the spiritual cleansing that we have received from the washing and regeneration and the renewal that comes by way of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us because we have placed our faith in Christ alone for salvation and life. So here it's drawn near to the gospel with the confidence or the conviction that you are welcomed here. We we are all of us like Peter. We honestly can say, Lord, you should depart from me because I'm a sinful man. You're associating with the wrong guy, Lord. You're choosing the wrong person. I don't deserve this. And you know it. And the Lord does know it. And yet he extends to us this invitation to draw near to him by the blood of Christ. I feel like it's the author of Hebrews meditating on the gospel all the things that he has written up to this point, thinking about what it means that, that, that Christ is the final sacrifice and the great high priest. And as he's meditating on that, he's drinking deeply of it. And the implication is, guys, let us come near to the throne of God because we are received not because of us, but because of him. It's the kind of drawing near that is connected to come on in. You're welcome here. Do you guys realize that the gospel is not, hey, um, I don't think you belong here. You don't really fit, right? Our, our, you know, our typical kind of guidelines. So you're not welcome here. The gospel is not. You can come in, but you know, don't make yourselves at home. You know, you can come and visit occasion if you want to, but that's that's all we got. The gospel is not. Hey, God, God loves you, but don't mess up. You really got to do the rest of this on your own. Now, the gospel is, let us draw near to our Heavenly Father. Come on in. Come home. Charles Feinberg um, is a professor at, uh, um, at Talbot Seminary, which isn't that far from here, right? Um, he's, uh, uh, he's one of my heroes of faith because of his particular story concerning his conversion. He grew up, um, I think, an Orthodox Jew. In any case, his father was very committedly um, Jewish. And um, because he grew up that way when he went off to college uh, as an undergrad, um, he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He confessed his sins, repented, and came to faith in Christ. And when his family heard about that, they immediately cut him off. So that he would, because you know, he's, I think, like a 19-year-old kid, um, had nowhere else to go. So he had spent his holiday like parked across the street from his family's house, looking through the window, watching them have their holiday meal, because he was no longer welcome. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. The, the gospel is, "You are welcome here." And you say, "Man, um, I, I don't know. I feel distant because I'm not like the other people. It doesn't matter. You feel like, oh, man, but I, I feel like, you know, I don't know. My life has been pretty crazy. I don't know if anyone has experienced anything like, it doesn't matter. You might feel like, my life is just plain. What do I have to offer? I don't, I don't have a lot of skill sets. I'm not a good thinker. I, I can't communicate. It I doesn't matter. The invitation is for you to come. The invitation is for you to know the living God. Let us draw near. to the God who has been gracious and willing to bring us home. Secondly, the second implication of gospel confidence, let us hold fast to hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. The same, same structure, same first person kind of a command the idea is let us together then then hold fast and and it could mean hold tightly but I think here the idea is to not give ground this is that uh Horatius Horace Horatius Socrates, Socrates. it's a it's a Roman name is it one of those great Roman legends of one of these soldiers that when Rome was about to be invaded, then the armies had to cross this this narrow bridge to actually enter into the city of Rome. And while the Roman forces were pulling back, one soldier, Horatius, he stood on the bridge and he fought and he fought and he commanded the bridge to be destroyed behind him. Kind of a suicidal last stand. That's the kind of thing that is mentioned here. Holding fast, meaning to hold your ground because it says in the next phrase, to, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, right? Don't give ground, be strong. And why is this exhortation so strong to this particular group of Christians? Because they were under persecution and tribulation So as this letter is written to them, some of them are being arrested. Many of them have been kicked out of their homes. So many things are going on that is so difficult. And you could see, right, the huddling of these Hebrew Christians together reading this letter and hearing this. Hold fast. Let us together hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I like the, the, the fact that the author uses this phrase, hold fast the confession of our hope. He could have just said, hold fast to your hope. But when he says the confession of our hope, he means confession not in the sense of telling you know, people what you have done wrong, but confession in the sense of, of, of professing what we believe. In other words, he's saying, what is it that you believe? What is it that you hope in? That's what you need to hold fast. That's where you need to hold ground. And usually, we run across the phrase, the confession of our faith. What is it that you believe? What's your doctrinal statement? But here, it is, what is it that you hope in? Hope and faith are connected. I, I think a good way to think about hope in the scriptures is that hope is, is the, the, future, the future sense of faith. It is faith for what is to come. It is trust that what is to come will come. That's what hope is. And Christian hope is different from the term that is used everywhere else. Um, I like Donald Guthrie who once said that the word hope in the New Testament used in a Christian sense conveys an element of absolute certainty, an element generally lacking in the modern usage of that word. I'll give you an example. In my undergrad years at UCLA, young believer, I remember this biology professor who would rail against Christian things. In the final, in her final lecture, right? She was just talking about all the bad things that are going on. This is intro bio, because I was terrible at sciences. I don't know if I even passed that class, right? But nevertheless, here she is, kind of railing against all the problems of the world, the diseases, the illnesses, the consumption of natural resources, global warming, whatever it was. Kind of railing at everything that is going wrong. And this, this is her hope. She said something to the effect of. But I believe that mankind has handled so many obstacles in the past, and I believe that the human spirit will prevail. So you're supposed to add in the, 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 the soft music, right? Dun 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 dun. And I believe the human spirit will prevail right? What does that mean? Is, is, that, is that a hope that is it is it is foundational, that is clear, that we could see, that we could believe in? Or is that just vague, wishful thinking? Man, that's the theology of Disney, right? I believe it in my heart, so it has to come true. Right? If you believe it hard enough, then it'll be okay. As long as you follow your heart, everything will work out well. Lies from the pit, man. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It is the absolute certainty That who we trust in will finish what he promised. If God has promised it, it must be true. Remember those old bumper stickers? I don't see them around anymore. But he said, God's word says it. I believe it. That settles it. I like that. But you can remove the I believe it part. Because if God's word says it, that settles it, period. Right? It doesn't need an affirmation of any human being. Just is if god has said or promised eternal life of joy of love of peace it will take place if he has promised the eradication of sin and suffering it will take place if he has promised an eternity in his presence enjoying communion and relationship to him and others it must take place If he has promised that we will one day be able to lay down all these burdens and hardships and struggles and tragedies and sins, it must take place. So for these these huddled Hebrew Christians under persecution, man... They must be so warmed by the, by, by the reminder that we are to go and hold our ground in what we believe that God is about to do without wavering because God has always proved himself to be faithful. Hope is so important to the Christian life, and partly because this Christian life is going to be difficult. You guys realize in the New Testament the promise of the Christian life is not prosperity and peace and everything goes really well. Now, anyone that desires to be godly in this life will be persecuted, right? In this world, you will have tribulation, trouble and difficulty, right, from the outside, struggles with sin from the inside. we, We will constantly be struggling with the fragility of this life. This day, this very moment, maybe you are struggling with something, maybe a tragic circumstance, or, or, or a difficult you know, situation with, with someone that you care about, or maybe at work or amongst, amongst you know, people that, that, that you relate to, your friends. Um, maybe it's an issue of sin or a, a need to forgive someone that is difficult. Maybe there's fear or anxiety. Whatever it is, right? we need hope. We, we need to know what it is we hope for and why it is that we believe that. We need to look and know that there is a finish line and when we cross that finish line it is all done. And that all the stuff, even the loose ends, it's all done, it's left behind and all things are made new. We need that because hope creates, right? The capacity for us to live for something greater than this present moment. See, hope creates that space that gives us freedom then because if we believe, right? Like Romans 8:18, 8, if I believe that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, then it gives me the space to be able to go, okay, this is too much. It is so difficult, but I will hold ground because I know there is glory to come because I know God will come because I know salvation is not done yet. It gives us the capacity to forgive, to be generous, even when we don't have much to love others, even when others are not that lovable. It gives us capacity to live like Christ because at some point it will be finished and God has promised that. So let us hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. See, I love that because it implies the struggling. It implies the difficulty, but it also reminds us that God loves us and is taking care of eternity people that go through difficult tragedy sometimes will ask you know why has God allowed this and I gotta be honest I don't have, a, I don't have an answer for that I, I'm not God I can't say oh you know why because God is doing 10 billion things and by doing this it kind of creates. I don't know I honestly don't and that's not, that's not my place to try to give an explanation for why this difficulty is happening to you But I do know this. I know that God loves you. You say, well, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, it may not feel like it in the moment. But that's exactly what the gospel is. At the cross of Christ, what else can explain but but God's love, his willingness to sacrifice his own son? 1 John 4.10 says, and this is love. This is how we know love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't know why. But I know it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. See, that's what it means to cling, right? That's what it means to hold fast to our confession of hope, to believe who God is and what he says about why he has done what he's done for us. And let that feed our souls in times of darkness and let that encourage us and spur us on more in times of rich and wealth and prosperity spiritually so implications of the gospel confidence let us draw near let's hold fast to hope and the final one let us stir up love and good deeds and if we we push pause for a moment here at this point right as we're kind of following the 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 the, the exhortation of the author of Hebrews at this point it it is possible for us to become overly self-centered about our gospel confidence our gospel confidence could start to sound like, you know, um, yeah, I should draw near to the Lord because it's about me drawing near. It, it could sound like my holding fast because of all my troubles, that I need to hold fast to my confidence in, in, in Christ and in the scriptures and the promises of God. I need to hold fast to my hope. So conveniently, the author of Hebrews gives us a third exhortation, a third command. And is let us, first person plural still, same structure, is a command for all of us together to hold hands and to do this. And what is it? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us stir up love and good works. Love and good deeds or love and good works. That's the main emphasis here, and we'll get to that in a second. But let's be a little more precise. Look at verse 24 with me. Let us consider how to stir up. What's the verbs here? It's not just let us stir up one another. It's not just let us love and do good works to one another. It is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Let us consider, and the word for consider means to be thought-filled, to give thoughtful attention to, um, to use your mind to plan and to purpose something. So it's about the thoughtfulness, right, they're using our brains to create love and good deeds amongst our brothers and sisters. In fact, the next word is it's, let us thoughtfully consider how we can stir up, right, others to good works. So stir up is a good word, but the word is stronger than that. It, it's a word that means to provoke. And like our English word, in this particular word is usually used in the negative. It's used to talk about how you kind of provoke somebody. Provoke's not a good thing. Right? And I, I guess we could sanctify it and we could say, well, that's what the scriptures say. I'm going to provoke you, brother, to love and good deeds. You know? like, come on, man, let's do this. You know? I'll provoke you that way, I suppose. Right? But the idea is that it's usually, it's such a strong word, it's usually used negatively. In fact, the only other time in the New Testament that it's used is in Acts 15, 39, where Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement about the usefulness of John Mark. And it provoked them to a sharp disagreement enough that they went separate ways the provocation for them to to separate their ministry, right? That's to stir up. That's to provoke. So it's a strong admonition. It says, let us, right, not just draw near to the Lord. Let us hold fast to the hope, the confession of hope that is in him. But now let us, let us think carefully about how we can prod each other, how we can push each other, how we can stir and, and provoke one another to love and good deeds. Um, it, it implies, at least at the outset, that love and good deeds don't, just don't happen. It implies that just because, you know, i made a profession of faith now, like, I can't help it. I'm just going to do love and good deeds. That's all I do, you know? You can call me Mr. Love and Good Deeds Man, right? Now, it implies that there needs to be some provocation, some kind of iron sharpening iron, that there needs to be some pushing and pulling, and that kind of stuff has to take place. And, and it's understandable that it should be love. In Matthew 22, when asked by lawyers, teachers, what's the great commandment, the great commandment in the law? And he said, you should love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, the second great commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is not surprising, And to do good deeds is not surprising. That should be the normal thing that we are trying to encourage one another to do. What is is surprising is that the command, though, is that we need to be thoughtfully considering how to push each other to love and good deeds. It's not just me loving and doing good deeds, although Scripture does tell me that I need to. But it's about me trying to encourage you to do that. It's about other-mindedness. You know the old adage, you know, um, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you, you feed him for a life, right? And it's the same thing. The, the, the exhortation of Scripture here is not, you go and do something that is loving and nice. You are supposed to do that, but it, the admonition is here for us to one another. Think of how we could push each other further, so that you learn to love, so that you learn to do good deeds. It's a biblical exhortation to every Christian, not only to love, but to cause others to love, not only to do good deeds, but to cause others to do good deeds as well. There's a very strong corporate mindedness about how to stir up love and good deeds with one another. And then it gives us this warning, and we'll do this one quick. Verse 25 not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. It's a simple exhortation, right? A good, a good warning for us um, to not forsake our assembling together. The assembling together is, um, the, the, the word itself is interesting. It may have even been, you know, uh, coined by the author of Hebrews himself because it's kind of adding on like, you know, different parts of, of, of these words. It, it, it is a double compounded word, which kind of, you know, if we were kind of literally translating, it, it would sound something like this is the, to gather together beside each other kind of a meeting. He's piling on the concepts so that he's making a strong emphasis to say that this is what we do, this is how we are bound. We assemble together, we meet together, we encourage one another, and it has become the habit of some that they don't come but encourage one another. What kills encouragement? What kills love and good deeds spurred on from one another to each other? Absence. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate in Scripture. The opposite of love is indifference. It's apathy. It's non-love. It's absence. This isn't me dropping a legalistic demand that you show up to every single thing that the church does. I'm saying there needs to be a connection in the body of Christ to such that you know that that's your ministry, that that's what you offer. And at the very minimum, what you offer is your very presence to encourage someone. And the neglecting of that assembly, it may not feel like it, but it is certainly not love. It is apathy. It is absence. It is non-love. So instead of that, do this. Encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. What day? I think it's the day of Christ when he finally returns. But see, here's the interesting caveat in saying that. As you see the day draw near, because the, before the Lord returns, places like 1 Timothy 3.1 tells us, in those last days, there will come times of difficulty. Everything in Scripture tells us that things are not going to get get better, and then the Lord shows up because everything's great. It's the opposite. Things are going to get worse and worse, and the Lord finally arrives. You know what the coldest part of the night is? It's just before sunrise. Did you know that? I wasn't a science major. Political science, I read, faked the funk, wrote a lot of essays, right? Science is not my thing. So I didn't know that for years. I just figured it's kind of like a bell curve. Like, you know, what's the coldest part of the night? Well, sunset's at 6 p.m., Sunrise at 6 a.m. approximately, right? I, don't get mad. I don't, I don't know, right? But somewhere in the middle, like, like right at midnight. Midnight must be the coldest part of the night. Wrong. Everything keeps getting colder and colder and colder until the sun rises. And then the heat ramps up again. So the coldest, coldest part of the night is just before the sun rises. The coldest part of our human existence will be just before the Lord returns. Do you get that? So it is significant that he says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near because on the one hand, he's reminding them that that day will draw near. But on the other hand, he's reminding them that things get worse and worse until that day. So don't forsake. Encourage. Prod each other to love and good deeds. Build one another up. Share the gospel. Do good things for each other because that's what we need. We need to be stirred up to love and good deeds, to encourage one another because that day is coming. And until that day comes, darkness and the coldest part of the night is upon us. Like I said, this is the first uh, Sunday of the year. And, uh, and I wanted to encourage you with something. And, and it might have been more than, than, than maybe I should have. But nevertheless, the idea is that the gospel builds into us this family confidence that demands of us not, not just to stand back at a distance, And if some of you in this room have never given your life to Christ, never confessed your sins, repented, and turned to him for salvation, man, the first Sunday of of the year could be the first Sunday of your new life. It doesn't take for you to figure things out or to sort things out or to clean yourself up. You come as you are. That is the openness of the gospel, that if you're willing to confess, to repent, and to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation, he will take you. And Christians in this room, That same gospel should speak to us. To call us to be drawn nearer and nearer to him. To call us to hold hold fastly to the hope that we have constantly confessed in our reading of scripture, in the singing of our praise, that we would believe that and we'd hope in that and we'd cling to that, especially when it's hard to hope. And that we would stir up one another not just not just love and do good deeds ourselves but to stir others to to inform others to disciple others to 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 build into one another the capacities to minister and to serve the god that is worthy oh it is a new year and i'm thankful for new years not new year's eve but i think for new years right for new beginnings a new opportunity for us to kind of evaluate and move on and as you do I pray, brothers and sisters in Christ, I I am thankful for you guys. You guys are brothers and sisters that are far away from me and I won't see you often, but I would love to hear, as our church prays for you and as you guys pray for us, I'd love to hear that you guys are growing, not not just in size, but but in just this love and affection for God because you are living in this gospel-saturated confidence and you're drawing near to the living God. Let's close our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our time in the Scriptures and for for the Gospel that opens our life and um, our hope, our our purposes um, to you. And and we ask that you would um, use the word that has been preached today, Lord, um, in a way that would be helpful. I pray for those hearts that might be struggling, that they might, again, find hope in the truth of what Scripture says about who God is, and what he has done for us. And maybe for those that are searching or wondering or, or trying to understand what all this gospel stuff about Jesus is, that they might hear this truth and might give themselves to salvation and life. We pray a blessing upon this church. I ask, Lord, um, and our and our congregation asks that this congregation will be blessed, Lord, with effective ministry and with glad joy in serving you. And so we praise you for our time praise you for all good things that you give us in Jesus' name. Amen.